My name is Dr. Ian Storch. I'm a board-certified gastroenterologist and osteopathic physician, and you are listening to DO or Do Not. If you're interested in joining our team or have suggestions or comments, please contact us at doordonotpodcast.com. Share our link with your friends and like us on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We hope you enjoy this episode. Did you know that after completing medical school and obtaining a DO or MD degree, you do not need to see patients? There are multiple paths in which doctors can work in other fields, while still putting their skills to good use. On this episode, we have Dr. Fred Lorenz, who gives us a unique perspective of a physician working in a non-clinical position. Dr. Lorenz studied and graduated from Kirksville College of Osteopathic Medicine, now better known as A.T. Still University. He completed his residency in family medicine, and after 10 years of clinical practice taking care of patients, he became frustrated and decided that he no longer wanted to deal with insurance companies and wanted to do something different. Dr. Lorenz discusses his experience and his path to becoming a medical science liaison, or MSL, for a pharmaceutical company, where he works to bridge the gap between healthcare workers in the field and the industry. As an MSL, He has worked in multiple disciplines, including rheumatology, dermatology, and now gastroenterology. This episode will give pre-medical and medical students the opportunity to explore a unique career path and unique roles that most do not consider on the path to becoming a physician. Dr. Lorenz, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Oh, you're so welcome, Ian. It's been a pleasure to have this opportunity. Freddie, the main reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast is because you have a non-clinical job. So I think it's important for pre-medical students, medical students, and residents to get an idea that there are things that you can do outside of clinical medicine. Super interesting. Yeah, it it has been. Now, first of all, we we talked before the podcast, we're not going to talk about the company that you work for or the medications that you work with just to keep things clean and simple. And that's okay with you. Absolutely. All right. But Freddie, you know, I met you obviously because you're in sort of the GI space. And I guess the way that I'd like to start is maybe you can tell us what your position is. Tell us what your job entails and tell us what you would do on a normal week, right? We're all seeing patients and we don't know anything else. So teach us something. Yeah, no. It's been great. I've been with the company that I'm with for almost 19 years. I was a 93 graduate at KCOM and I was in private practice, family medicine for 10 years and decided that I I needed a career change, right? And at the time we were hit very hard with the HMOs that came into the payer space. And a lot of the medicine that we were practicing was very, very dictated by the HMO. At the time, I really thought maybe, Ian, that I would end up in some type of hospital administration role. I'm very glad at this point in my life that I didn't go that path. And I happened to be married to a beautiful lady that was a pharmaceutical rep. And she came home one day and she said, you know, you should look into this. I was was at an office today and I had a lunch and we had a doctor from our company come in and present some information that we couldn't talk about as, you know, sales reps. And really, you mean like a a doctor, like a MD or a DO? And she's like, yeah, he was actually an MD. So I talked with him and kind of got an idea of what this kind of pharmaceutical industry role was all about. 
in talking to him, I, I kind of became aware that there was quite a career path in, in the pharmaceutical industry. And that even though you didn't put your hands on patients and have direct care with them, you still could greatly impact the outcome of their disease. So I did a little bit of searching and put a lot of applications in and lo and behold, ended up with a great job with a company that is probably top 10 in the pharmaceutical industry in the immunology space is an MSL. So 19 years ago, started as an MSL. What's an MSO, Freddie? Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, it's a medical science liaison. That's what it stands for. And that position bridges the science of the pharmaceutical industry with people like yourself that are doing direct care with patients on the medicine side. So it's really a bridge. And, you know, you're the clinical and scientific expert, medical expert in the area that you work in. So when I started, it was in rheumatology. I worked a little in dermatology and been in gastroenterology for almost 15 years. So that MSL is the person who, if you have questions about a particular disease state, or you have questions about publications or data or a clinical trial that's out there, medical science liaison could come in. They're the expert on helping you better understand maybe that clinical trial, the design, you know, what the efficacy and safety data were on that particular drug. Super interesting. So Freddie, you're not trained in gastroenterology, but you now are working with immunology medications in that space. Was that difficult to do or was your general knowledge maybe better because maybe you had more immunology understanding than the general gastroenterologist? What do you think about that? Yeah. So great, great point. Because yes, I, I did my residency in family practice. i not an immunologist, you know, my training and my background. The great thing about the industry and any company that someone would be interested in working for, they have a phenomenal training program. And it's not like when we have to take our boards, but there are a lot of exams, <laughs> a lot of tests, a lot of studying, but they have great programs to take someone that has not been in the industry or in a particular specialty area before and help them get up to speed. So no, I didn't do four years of fellowship and residency in gastroenterology, but I've had 15 years of training in it now. So you do an excellent job internally being able to get you to where you need to be. And these, these are all doctorate level positions, right? So when you come in as an MSL, the vast majority of companies require you to have an MD, a DO, a PharmD. So highly educated people that are able to get up to speed and and learn the data and the information very quickly. So Freddie, now things are different with COVID and we want to get a general idea. Pre-COVID, post-COVID, like what does your week look like? What do you actually do? Like, if someone was interested in this, what does an MSO do on a daily and weekly basis? Yeah, so and it's, it's, it's really interesting. I've had multiple leadership roles within my current company. I'm currently the senior medical lead for gastroenterology. So my job is field-based. So an MSL's job is field-based. There's about seven or eight major jobs that physicians can take within the industry based on their background or their training as a physician. So I've had multiple roles. My role right now, it's part field-based and it's part headquarters-based. So every, every pharmaceutical company has a headquarters base, right? Their corporate offices. Things are very different today and two years ago and last year than they were, you know, three years ago when I was working for this company. And, you know, you hit it right on the head. COVID's changed all of our lives. It's impacted everybody in this world in, in, in one shape or form. The difference right now for me, so if you're an MSL, your job is to support physicians in the field. 
And when, when physicians have questions in the specialty that you work in, you're the one that's there to help them get the right answer, the best answer, right? This part of the industry, because it's medical affairs, is not commercially related. So a sales representative from a company might come in and they might have their 10 different lines that they need to pitch and they need to sell a drug, right? A medical science liaison or a medical affairs person in the industry is not there to sell anything. We're there to provide you the best and most accurate data that will help you and a patient make the best decision for their care. So we have nothing to do with sales. In fact, other than an introduction to yourself, a sales representative, I can't even be in the same room with you or another provider. It's against guidelines, right? And we have a lot of guidelines that we have to follow in the industry. So you have to remain compliant. The beauty of an MSL is you can ask me any question you want. And I have certain guidelines that I can proactively lead a conversation with, and I have certain topics. But if you ask me something, you can ask me anything and we can discuss it from a, from a medical standpoint. There's certain things, there's guidelines that you have to follow that you can, as a person working in medical affairs in the industry, there's only certain things I can come in and lead the conversation with, right? And then anything that that stems off to, obviously remaining compliant with federal guidelines and company guidelines. We can go to whatever area of conversation you want to have, but I can't proactively discuss anything, you know, off-label with whatever drug I'd be working. And that's that's standard across the industry. My day-to-day is very interesting because I now work remotely from home. I used to spend a lot of time, half my time would be spent at the corporate office and half my time would be spent in the field. Now I'm about, well, I'm at home all the time. But a medical science liaison or someone in the medical affairs industry that works in the field, they're out traveling quite a bit. So two years ago, prior to COVID, I'd have 70 or 80 trips, flights, travel opportunities per year, country porting various providers with their needs. Most geographies for someone in the field for medical affairs, like an MSL, they have a smaller geography. My role is a little different because I get pulled to specialty needs areas of the country, right? You support, you know, the Michigan area and, and Northern Ohio. Day-to-day, it's lots of conference calls, lots of planning for, for, the, for the new year here. It's very strategic in terms of what are the things that providers in the gastroenterology field, what, are they, what do they need? What are their needs? And we only know that by our conversations with, with providers like yourself. So lots of conference calls, there's lots of travel opportunities, but uh, I also work with our pipeline and development strategy behind how that product is going to perform. There's, there's a lot of great jobs in the industry for physicians choose not to have direct patient care, but it, it, it varies. It's, it's a lot of conference calls. It's like being in meetings, but virtually. Sounds totally interesting and totally different than colonoscopy for half the day. <laughs> different, different than definitely different than clinical. But again, a lot of people either decide obviously early in their career or maybe after medical school that they don't want to do clinical or similar to you, maybe just are not happy with the climate and want to do something different. And it's an amazing, it sounds like an amazing opportunity. And, you know, I come from a family of DOs, right? My father was a DO and my younger brother is a DO. It's interesting because, you know, my brother's still in practice, my younger brother. He frequently talks about what's the next step. He's always asking me questions about what I do and how I got there. And it's amazing opportunities. And I can tell you that almost 19 years here, 
I've had a good 20, 25 trips to Europe for various medical congresses. I probably would have never traveled out of the U.S. had I not been in the position I'm in and got to see a lot of things and do a lot of things and still feel like I can impact patient care indirectly. But, you know, when you get into the industry with with a good company, regardless of what the therapeutic area is, there's so many opportunities. Like I said, I've had about six or seven different job responsibilities and leadership roles over the 18 plus years I've been here. Freddie, I want to take a step back and hear a little bit more about your path, which obviously your dad's a DO. That kind of sets you up real nicely for going into the profession. So can you tell us when you decided you wanted to be a doctor, where you went to college, and when you decided that you were going to go to osteopathic school? Yeah. So great, great questions. Obviously, dad kind of led the way a little bit, didn't push too hard. Certainly, I was an average high school student, very stellar in college. I went to Northeast Missouri State University, which is now Truman State University. It's in Kirksville. It's a small liberal arts and science college. Before I got accepted there on a scholarship, I actually went to a Founders Day with my father in Kirksville, and I was introduced to the president of the medical school at the time. He's no longer with us, unfortunately, but phenomenal man. He was a mentor for me for years, Fred Tinney. We were at a dinner, just five or six of us, a few of my family members and a couple of his family members. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm getting ready to go to college. I'm graduated from high school and I've got a couple opportunities. I haven't accepted anything yet. And he said, why don't you apply to Northeast and and, and see what happens? And if you do well there in the pre-med program, you know, apply to Kirksville. So I came in there on a scholarship and finished my bachelor of science in biology and applied to Kirksville. And I was actually, for my graduating class from Northeast, I was the first student that was accepted into KCOM. So I spent the better part of eight years in Kirksville, Missouri. Where did you grow up? I was actually born in Detroit, raised in metropolitan Detroit. So I've been in the Michigan metropolitan Detroit area most of my life other than school. And what did you think of Kirksville, you know, coming from a metropolitan area? Unbelievable. As you know, it's A.T. Still University now. It was an amazing opportunity from the standpoint that a phenomenal place to actually go and get an education, right? It's a small town. It's a small community. It's all built around the university, both universities now, but the university at the time and then the medical school with Kirksville at the time, not much to do. If you're not an outdoors person, meaning you don't like to hunt and fish and camp and do that kind of stuff, you know, there's no professional sports, but still you're close enough to Kansas City and St. Louis. We take trips down there on weekends when finish up some big exams at the, at the university or at the medical school. So it was a great place to stay focused and, and, and get an education. And what did your dad think? Was your dad pushing you? Was your dad excited? Did your dad ever tell you not to go to medical school? What, what were his feelings? Absolutely not. He was very, very excited. Never pushed, but there to support that if that was my end desire, which obviously it was. I think he he was very proud. He's no longer with us either, but I think he was very proud of myself and my younger brother for going the path that we took. And Ian, as you know, there's lots of, at least in, in my era, there were a lot of DO students, osteopathic students that really probably we used to call them backdoor MDs. <laughs> Didn't get into the school they wanted, but went elsewhere and our, our hospitals were all separate, right? All of my training were full osteopathic hospitals. If there was an MD on staff, it was very rare. 
now we're all integrated and think back in my dad's day, people didn't understand that we took the same boards and had the same licenses and everything that allopathic physicians had. And it took a long time. My dad was a big advocate of that. He, uh, he, he was a, a diehard DO, talked all around the country at uh, different schools and stuff, just about the profession. And so, yeah, he was, he was extremely excited that myself and my brother uh, both went to osteopathic school. So Freddie, then tell us, you did a residency in family practice, you mentioned, can you tell us, you know, how you made a decision on family practice and the program? And then again, ultimately, you told us you went into industry. It was really interesting. And, you know, as we all know that we'll listen to this, we probably have 10 different loves before we decide really what, what specialty we're going to go into. And I think when I was a med student, all I wanted to do was be a surgeon, right? And that was kind of my focus to go into general surgery. And when I was a, a student, the very first rotation I had outside of Kirksville was OBGYN. And I was in a small community hospital at the time as a med student. They had one resident in the program and uh, I got to be involved in a lot of deliveries and got to do a lot of things as a student that, you know, maybe today you don't necessarily get to do. So all of a sudden my love went to, I want to be an OBGYN, right? And as I rotated through different specialties, you know, as, as next turn, you know, you kind of fall in love with every specialty you end up doing. You know, at one point I thought, oh, orthopedics, that's where I want to be. I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. Ultimately, what it turned out to be, Ian, is I didn't want to spend my life in the hospital. I wanted to have the flexibility to, if I had an inpatient and wanted to spend time taking care of a, a, a patient in the hospital, I could, but I really kind of fell in love with the flexibility and the freedom to the office and not be in a hospital day to day. So after 10 years of doing that, you know, like I said, I was very disenchanted with HMOs and the payer space and was very fortunate to find that there's huge opportunities in the industry. So Freddie, now talking about being a DO and going into pharmaceutical industry, do you feel that there were barriers being a DO? Did your being a DO ever come up? How was how that going into sort of different level of practice? Great, great question. And you hit it right on the head. So let's go back to the time when I was thinking about applying to various positions in the industry. You're talking 20 plus years ago. With that being said, if you are interested in a role in the pharmaceutical industry, there's a lot of recruiting companies out there that are looking for physicians to come into the industry. 20 years ago, I actually was working with a couple. I, I did a lot of the footwork on my own. I put in a lot of, I sent a lot of applications and my CV to a lot of companies, a lot of the big pharma companies. And I was also working with a, a pharmaceutical recruiter or a few of them. And one of them actually said to me, hey, I've got this great position, but you're a DO and they don't accept DOs. And I said, well, why is that? I said, I, is it just that they don't have the understanding of what a doctor of osteopathy is? I have the same license, the same training, the same everything that, that an allopathic MD physician has. So what it really came down to, I think, Ian, because I ended up getting that position. That's the position I took. <laughs> I ended up it on my own because I had already applied for it on my own. So I think what it really came down to is that that particular recruiter at the time was not aware of what osteopathic medicine. I don't think people from the osteopathic profession that would want to go into the industry would face the same thing now. But uh, it was a great question because I actually did face that. I had to really like explain like, I'm no different than an MD, right? We have the same training and the same licenses and 
same board requirements and all that kind of stuff. So, but 20 years ago, people didn't understand that. Right. Right. Again, you know, for me, obviously when I, I had a question, that's how I was introduced to you. And when my rep told me that you were DO, I was like so excited. Cause I was like, I can ask him a question and maybe I can get him to come on our podcast. Absolutely. And you know what, Ian, I've met so many, I, I get so excited. And one of the things when I am actually out in the field, meeting a person like yourself face-to-face to talk through gastroenterology topic, one of the first things I do when I walk into a, a hospital or an outpatient facility is I look on the board, who are the DOs on there? You know, right. I, I get to meet fellow osteopathic physicians and I get excited about it because we automatically have a connection because of our profession. It's awesome to, to meet the people that I've met, the osteopathic physicians around the country over the years. And I've become very good friends with some of your colleagues in New York and some of the ones down in Florida and Chicago and California. And so, yeah, I always get excited. I, and I actually cross paths with a lot of our osteopathic colleagues at Congresses because the you know, on the, on the industry side, we tend and support the big congresses. So DDW and ACG and AIBD, that because I'm in the gastro space. So I get to see a lot of my gastroenterology osteopathic colleagues at those congresses and conferences. Yeah, it's so funny. It's nice to see you smile as you're talking about it. We interviewed early on in the podcast, a friend of mine named Dave Galinkin, who is my chief resident. He's an infectious disease specialist. And he always used to kid around that that as DOs, we have like a secret handshake, you know? <laughs> I know that handshake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I was an Atlas member. <laughs> so funny, right? Yeah. And, you know, I will tell you another thing that I think is really, really important for the listeners to understand is there is a special space and need in the industry for trained physicians. And it is very different, the conversations that I have with various providers, gastroenterologists, it's a very different conversation than that provider or that gastroenterologist might have with a PharmD. Now, they have their clinical training, right? Their PharmD clinical training, but there's a different level of respect, regardless of what your specialty background is coming into the industry from medicine. It's almost like you you almost have automatic respect. It's physician to physician conversations. And again, you know, you're not there to sell something. You're there to support the objective data and show the evidence that helps that provider make decisions with their patients for appropriate care. I, I will say this, even though probably shouldn't be on the record, it doesn't matter to me what biologic drug an IBD patient gets as long as that is the right drug for that patient. I know our paychecks are paid by the drugs we support, but at the same time, that's not what it's about. It's about helping providers help patients make the right decisions for their disease. Freddie, you're awesome. And listen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm going to ask you one final question. It's kind of like our ultimate final question. I'm curious, you know, again, you're in a little different position than a lot of the clinicians that we talk to, but I'm going to ask you the same question. So our final question is always, do you have one piece of advice or a specific piece of advice that you were given by somebody else, whether it's your father, your brother, a teacher, somebody at Kirksville, someone in industry, a doctor or what have that, that has really influenced you that you think would be great to pass on to students or other people going through the journey? 
I'll tell you two things, Ian, that resonate in my head immediately. One is a cardiologist that taught us cardiology at Kirksville. And I asked a question. I said, I don't mean this to be a dumb question, but I asked a question. And he looked at the classroom and he looked across the classroom and he said, the only dumb question is the question you know the answer. So if you don't know the answer, it's never a dumb question. So that's always resonated with me. The other thing is, no matter what we do in life, what profession we're in, what specialty we're in, what what part of what space we're in, you always want to be a leader, right? And you want to be the best leader you can, whatever that looks like. And I had a very, very high level person in industry tell me one time that the thing that makes a great leader is the person that can have foresight and see around the corner as to what's coming. And I sat back and I thought to myself, you know what? I was that type of person. I saw what my future was looking like in medicine and I had the ability to see around the corner and what future opportunities existed. And I never forgot that when he told me that. That's be awesome. the corner. You'll be a great leader if you can be able to see around the corner and always ask every question unless you know the answer. Amazing. Freddie, again, thank you for your time. This has been great. I appreciate, and I'm sure our listeners appreciate. Yes, you too, Ian, and hello to all my uh, EO colleagues out there. This concludes our episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at Do or Do Not Podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up, and we're excited to share them with you. This is Tian Yu Shea. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do or Do Not.